Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, June 5th, we are studying Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13. As the strong and the weak in the faith are one in Christ, so Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. And the Old Testament is full of those gracious promises of God anticipating this union that has been accomplished in Christ Jesus. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us a regular guest, Pastor Sean Denzer. Pastor Denzer serves as the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and the Chaplain for the International Center. Pastor Denzer, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's great to be back. As we get started this morning, Pastor Denzer, give us some context in the book of Romans. Paul has spent quite a bit of time talking about the strong and the weak in Christ and how they are to regard each other. And there's a bit of an overlap, I think, in what he's going to get to today, but he, he also transitions a bit. What do we need to know about the surrounding context going into the text for today? Sure. Well, we're nearing the end of the book, obviously. Uh, Romans is kind of sometimes considered like the, you know, the, the basics, uh, the full Christian faith, you know, for the beginner. It's a great place for people to read, of course, because you, Paul takes us all the way from, from sin, our human condition, uh, through the righteousness of Christ, uh, baptism, the suffering of the cross, uh, uh, even into the questions of election. And then that brings up the question of, well, what about those Jews? Uh, is the Lord only for the Gentiles now? No, he's for both. Uh, and, and in chapter 12, he kind of starts his section where we usually call it paranetics, where he's, where he's talking about, um, uh, how, how we ought to live, you know, and his phrase in Romans then becomes so helpful for us as Christians that our, our duty as, as priests in the Lord's royal priesthood is to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. It's different than, than burning an animal up on the altar. Uh, we're not going to be burned up. Now, we may be banged around an awful lot, and we may face all sorts of uh, trials, which we already talked about back in chapter 8. Uh, but uh, this is going to be through our love of our neighbor, through uh, offering ourselves as living sacrifices, as those who who, who waste away, as he says in other books, uh, but also that the gospel may go forward and so that mercy may be shown to others. And so one of the particular ways he's emphasized that for us is uh, that he is pointing to, to the to the weak Christians and and the various ways that people can pass judgment on another or that they can act so boldly uh, that it leads them to stumble. You almost wonder if he's got the Corinthian congregation in mind as he's saying these things to the Romans. Um, and while the book of Romans isn't necessarily written to just Gentiles or just Jews or with a certain person in mind, as, as like Galatians definitely has a real bent to trying to tease this out, that, that Judaism or Judaizing, we should say, shouldn't creep uh, into Christianity and take away the gospel. He's got to deal with that because whatever Christians may be in Rome already are likely of some Jewish background, but they may also be God-fearers, those who, who have come into the faith. Perhaps those are the ones, you know, they've gone through the hoops uh, before Christ came, and now they're uh, holding on to those law markers as, as necessary, uh, which is Paul's whole argument that, no, we don't have to uh, become circumcised. We don't have to keep the Old Testament laws, uh, particularly those rituals, uh, in order to become a Christian, because in Christ they find their fulfillment. Um, and he uses directly before this passage the example of Christ Jesus uh, and his uh, patience uh, 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 and what, whatever was done in the past. Uh, now we are to use for our encouragement here and in particular that we would have harmony in Christ Jesus and in the Father, uh, which then leads into what he's going to say today for, with us, which is in a certain way 
a brief introduction to the Old Testament on Gentiles. And he just kind of lobs out the passages. And, and I think in English, especially when we read this uh, in a lot of uh, churches on the second Sunday in Advent, it, it really strikes you that, um, wow, there's a whole pile of passages here. And, and anybody who had the idea that the Old Testament was just about Jewish life and had nothing to say about Gentiles or, or the idea that Paul came on the scene and said for the first time ever this brand new idea that God might care about Gentiles. Uh, Paul just wants to lay it on thick and, and and just bomb us with a whole bunch of passages. And so that's what we're going to get to hear and hopefully investigate. So a, a couple of thoughts on that introduction, which was very well laid out, taking us through the, the whole book and, and putting this text very well within that whole context. One, you brought out verse 4 where Paul talks about for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So he's, he's talking there about the Old Testament. And as you said, the church in Rome is, is made up of both Jews and Gentiles in terms of their, their ethnicity. And it, it struck me when we were reading that passage yesterday, that, that particularly how that applies to the Gentile. Paul's talking there about the Old Testament, which the, it would have been those of, of Jewish background that would have been reading the Old Testament primarily, and yet Paul says, well, no, this, this book is for all of you. And so I think that's, that's one of the, the key moves that Paul is making. He's, he's going to expound upon that. And, and then, too, I, you know, he's been talking about strong and weak in faith. And Paul never equates strong and weak with Gentile and a Jew, that it's the Gentiles who are strong, the Jews are weak. Though, as, as we've been talking about that the last several days, sometimes it, it seems that those of, of Gentile background may have tended to be the the strong, simply because they didn't have that background of observing particular days and of, of abstaining from particular foods because it just wasn't a part of their their culture or, or their religion previously. Whereas in Judaism, that was a big deal and might have been harder for them to overcome, to live out fully in freedom in Christ. But there was never a perfect equation of the two. And so I don't, I mean, it's not a, it's not a, Strong and weak, and now Jew and Gentile being united is—it's not the exact same thing. But I do think that there's a relation. That that if Paul can say in the previous chapter and a half, "You strong and weak in Christ are united together in your love for each other," then how much more is there this union between Jew and Gentile that was talked about in the whole Old Testament? And now here, let me let me lay that out for you. That's the way that I kind of connect these two sections. Definitely. I think, and when we see the very first uh, of our verses today, uh, verse 8, uh, it, it's going to start out with the idea that Christ is a servant, um, which ought to remind us of what Jesus himself said, right? Uh, uh, he said it in a few parables. He said it also uh, on the night he was betrayed in the upper room as he was washing the disciples' feet. You, you know, what, what you expect is 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 the person who's strong, the person who's got it together, the person who is a, a, a nobleman. Uh, the person who is the higher, the more important, the bigger deal. They're the ones who sit and relax and everybody else is to serve them, right? The, the weak ought to, ought to bow before the strong, you would think. Uh, but Jesus says, well, look at me. Uh, you know I'm the greater one, but I'm among you as one who serves. Uh, and, that, and that's a characteristic of Christ. And, and Christ says, this ought to be characteristic of you. If I've washed your feet, do you get what I'm doing here? Um, uh, you also have to have that attitude of, of thinking others better than yourself. So Paul's already kind of said that at the beginning of chapter 15, right? Uh, let's please our neighbors for our good, not please ourselves, right? Let's build up our neighbors, right? If we're the strong ones, that doesn't mean that we, you know, the weak serve us, you know, or that we lord it over them. It means that we have a duty to, to, to almost bend over backwards to be extra careful for their benefit. Um, and I think in a way he's kind of concluding that argument with our first verse today, which, which really should connect with the stuff before it, I think, and certainly at least with the verse seven. Uh, uh, but, but the point being that Christ is a servant. Um, and in what way then do we have to imitate him as well in that, in that attitude of service? 
uh, and uh, he's going to take it in kind of a different direction of, of, of what Christ's servitude was rather than just, you know, showing mercy, uh, but, uh, but the way in which Christ was a servant to them, uh, which doesn't amplify them as so as them being the Jews as being so much better than, uh, but it shows Christ's faithfulness and it ought to give hope then to everyone, Jew or Gentile, weak or strong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that verse, I mean, there, there, there are a lot of connections from this text to the previous one. And that verse 7, we talked about this a little bit yesterday, that verse 7 is a bit of a hinge here. And, and it's hard to know exactly where to include it. Should we have included it yesterday or even, even today, you know, in the way that the ESV breaks the paragraphs, verse 7 goes yep. with verse 1 through 6. But in other, it, Martin Franzman's commentary is the one that I've been using throughout this study. And he puts 7 with the verses that we're looking at today. And, and there's certainly a bunch of, there's quite a bit of overlap. This matter of welcoming one another applies to strong and weak, and it also applies to, to Jew and Gentile. And so, you know, he, what he's built up really through 14, all the way through 15, six certainly gets summed up in that verse seven, but then that verse seven really pushes us forward into the text that we've got today with, as you said, Christ remaining the example for it. That was the move that Paul made in, in verse three of this chapter that, Look, this is what Christ did in terms of not pleasing himself, but looking for the good of others. Now Christ continues in that role as example, but also providing us, as we'll see towards the end of the text, the hope that we have is, is all found in Christ for Jew and Gentile. Yeah, and if I may, just um, we just had this great passage that we as Lutherans know especially well because it's part of that prayer uh, that we use for for listening to the scriptures. I think it's probably one we're hearing more as churches maybe have not been able to gather for communion. We tend to kind of put this prayer at the end, the prayer for the word that we may read, mark, learn, inwardly digest it, so that by patience and comfort of the holy scriptures we may have hope. This is a direct quote out of Romans fifteen, right? That that through this comfort of the scriptures the promises and seeing them fulfilled in Christ Jesus, that this gives us confident hope and, and aims our, focuses our attention toward the future when the, when the Lord will reveal this salvation and this redemption for the sons of men uh, on earth. But also as we get into this Jew-Gentile thing, we should not forget that Paul talked an awful lot about Abraham, talked an awful lot about the character of the law in the Old the Old Testament, how we ought to read it, uh, uh, whether whether it's a matter of faith or it's a matter of works. And so I think, uh, in a way, he is actually making connections to earlier parts of the book by bringing all of this up. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And, and well, that'll come up too, particularly as we get into these Old Testament quotes. Some of them come from David. We even have uh, the name Jesse, David's father. And so there are those those connections to to the previous text. So let's go ahead and read. We're in Romans chapter 15, beginning at verse 8. Paul writes, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles to sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. That is the text for today, Romans 15, verses 8 through 13. Pastor Denzel, you already touched on this a little bit. Paul starts in this text saying that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. What? It, why did Christ become a servant to the circumcised? An astounding thing. Um, if if the Messiah is to be the King of Israel, right? If he is, if he's to restore the kingdom to Israel, uh, all the things we've been thinking about at Ascension and and then Pentecost and the the change in understanding that has to happen for so many Jews who thought this was going to be a kingdom on earth, uh, who who had a sense that this King Messiah was coming to to give it to the Romans, uh, it would be it would make perfect sense for him to ride in on a war horse and for everybody to say Hosanna. Instead, he rides in on a donkey, right? And, and the children are the one, ones who seem to be uh, leading his procession. Uh, so Christ has already kind of shattered those um, 
misconceptions of what the Messiah ought to be. But this also is a shattering of it, right? Uh, that it isn't for the Jews to serve their Messiah, but it, and at the same time, it isn't for the Messiah to come and honor the Jews in some kind of human earthly way. Uh, uh, we condemn this teaching in, in the book of Concord, right? That we call it a Jewish opinion that the Lord's going to come back at the last day and establish some kind of thousand year reign uh, physically on earth and set up a throne room, uh, you know, in an oval office in Jerusalem. Uh, this is to, to what? To honor uh, people of Jewish descent or, or Jewish belief. That's, uh, Paul really debunks that right here because he says Christ has become the servant to them. And you're right, that, that really flips it. You wouldn't expect Christ to be the servant. You expect him to be the king. He's, he is the Lord, right? Uh, but it shows that he's serving them not in order to hold them up as better than everyone else, but to show God's truthfulness. This echoes so much of the Old Testament where God's always repeating to his people, uh, I'm going to rise up and smite your enemies for my name's sake, right? It's not going to be, it's not because you've been wonderful and perfect, so I'm going to reward you. It's not because I think so highly of you. You've been rebellious in almost everything, but, but that I will vindicate my own name and rise up. And the result will be your benefit, right? Uh, mm. So, so from Israel's perspective, it's always been mercy from the Lord, uh, and His name has been glorified in that service, right? Mm. Uh, that's exactly what has happened now, uh, once and for all. We might say in Christ Jesus, it shows God's truthfulness, and and it and now we hearken back to the Old Testament. Um, and as you mentioned before, I kind of steamrolled this ideal, but I think it's really important to understand all of this Jewish stuff ought to now be taken into our Gentile history as well. So when we sing the Benedictus in church all the time, Zechariah's song, you know, he talks about uh, uh, the promises that he spoke to our forefathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. It sounds exactly like what this is saying. It even calls Christ the servant, right? Uh, the day spring from on high. Well, this is it. Uh, the Lord made great promises to Abraham, great promises to the patriarchs, the forefathers. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in particular. But we might also want to include Adam himself, right? And the great promise to Adam and Eve uh, that the seed would crush the serpent's head. That now has been confirmed, promised, uh, uh, delivered. You can also look at the book of Hebrews, which we did a while back in Sharper Iron, uh, to uh, to see the very same thing. And at the same time, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as well, right? He doesn't say as well there, but, but think about what Peter says in the 15th chapter of Acts. He has this great moment at the council where he doesn't fall into the old patterns, but he says, look, we Jews have been trying to be saved by the law and have failed for how many years? Clearly, we're going to be saved by faith in Christ Jesus, just as these Gentiles are too. Uh, and so Paul is going to take it the other way, right? We, we expect that the Jews will be saved. Of course, they have the great promises, but now the Gentiles are also going to be shown the same sort of mercy. As you, as you were talking there, I, one of the things that, that strikes me I, in terms of the effect that this is going to have, Paul's words here on both Jew and Gentile, is that it, it brings them both underneath the same mercy of God in humility that would prevent them from doing the things that Paul's been talking about in terms of strong and weak when it comes to things like judgment and despising each other within the church. So that the temptation for the Jew in relationship to the Gentile would be to look down upon the Gentile because, because look, oh, I, I am one of the circumcised, and Christ became a servant to me, and I I'm, I'm, can trace my lineage back to the patriarchs. And so look at, look at me. And Paul says, no, no, Christ became a servant to the circumcised, not because the circumcised were so great, but because he was showing his truthfulness to save. And so Paul's words then bring, bring those who are Jews to that humility in Christ. And then in Gentiles as well, a similar or a, another sort of despising judgment would be a temptation for Gentiles looking upon Jews. Going back a little bit to, to the end of Romans 11, where, where Paul talks about the, the unnatural branches grafted in when the natural branches were pruned. 
And, and the temptation for the Gentiles there was to become proud. Look, look at me. I'm in Christ now and you are not. And Paul says here, no, Gentiles, you're glorifying God for his mercy to you, not because of anything that you did, but because he was merciful to you. That's how you are a part of the church. And so here, I mean, with, with this verse, at least in terms of its effect on the church, Jew and Gentile together, is to remind them both of there's not going to be judgment. There's not going to be despising because God has shown his mercy to you in Christ. You are together in this church, not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done for you. Yeah. Uh, so fascinating that Christ produces humility in his saints by humbling himself to serve them, right? That's kind of the point that, that he becomes the servant to produce humility in both parties. Um, and I think that attitude, by the way, is, is very much needed among us as Christians to, 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 to repent where we have been arrogant in any way uh, on any side of all of the many issues that are afflicting us and, and, uh, and tearing our hearts apart and our nation apart right now. Uh, but but humility is is the attitude that needs to be put on, and 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 we see this in Christ, right? Uh, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and uh, and uh, consider Christ, right, who humbled Himself even to death on a cross, uh, for what to to see the great mercy that He's shown to us, which then leads us to be much much more patient, to control our mouths and our anger, uh, and to to let um to let mercy and compassion be our attitude toward others first uh, rather than uh, a last resort or something or something we put off as long as we can. So Paul then, having laid that out in verse 8, he's going to begin to pile one Old Testament quotation upon another here to make his point that the Gentiles too are going to glorify God. He's going to give us this primer in the Old Testament concerning the Gentiles particularly, and how they too are included in the people of God. So, Pastor Denzer, maybe the way we'll do this is on this side of the break, as we get started, just give us a, like, a, a big picture here with what Paul is doing. And then when we come back on the other side of the break, we'll start digging into particular verses, where are these passages coming from, what's Paul doing. But, but here on this side, just give us a, a full sort of overarching picture of what Paul's doing together with these Old Testament quotations. He's going to hit all the important characters, or most of them at least. He's going to get David. He's going to get Moses. He's going to get Isaiah. And he's going to get David again, because you got to have a lot of, got to have the Psalms. Um, and he's going to show how they were always talking this whole time about the Gentiles being included, particularly in praise. Um, there, now, often in the Old Testament, I think we'll see it surrounding these passages as well. It seems to be in the context of a conquering victory, right? You you subdue your enemies and you compel them to bend the knee, right? You compel them to to give you praise. We get a little taste of that when Paul says elsewhere, um, uh, you know, at the last day, every knee shall bow, right, uh, in heaven and earth, and the name of Jesus Christ will be praised. Uh, but what what is amazing is all of these conquest psalms, all these things in the Old Testament that talk about, you know, almost subduing the nation so that then they come and bring tribute, turn out to be realized in Christ Jesus, not through great violence, right? The, the New Testament is not a campaign of... of uh, submission and conquering but but it's a conquering of 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 service of the same example we just talked about uh, that mercy goes out that, that the proclamation of christ's completed work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and the great hope and confidence that gives us goes out to all the world uh, and it's not just in jerusalem it's not even uh, just to judea or samaria now but it's to the ends of the earth as, as it says at the end of Luke. Uh, so so by, by grabbing all the key characters and all these great references, Paul just kind of brings something that was always there in the Old Testament scriptures, always in the back of the Jewish mind, but maybe, I mean, definitely not something that was highlighted. But I think by drawing our attention, by asking us to go back and consider where those are in the Old Testament, we end up seeing Oh, these are kind of at very key places. Maybe this is maybe this is a bigger theme in the Old Testament than we ever realized, um, and and it's what Peter says right in his letter that uh, the angels and the prophets were were diligently searching out for the Christ, longing to see these things, uh, but but now we get to now we get to grasp them and uh, and 
one of the biggest things is that with Christ and all of his benefits uh, comes uh, the fact that these are for the whole world, for the Gentiles as well. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFO, looking at Romans 15, verses 8 through 13. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, Welcome back to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. It is Friday, June 5th, and we are studying Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13 with Pastor Sean Denzer. Pastor Denzer serves as the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and the Chaplain for the International Center. Pastor Denzer, one of the things that struck me as you were summarizing earlier, you, you brought up the context of many of these passages in the conquering victory now, that was a, a very good insight. One of the things that, that stands out to me is the matter of praise and joy that comes through. But when you put it in the, the context of a conquering victory, it, it makes that praise even more striking because if, if the Gentiles are the ones that, I mean, thinking through that, right, that, that they're coming back and, and here, who's conquered? Well, well, Christ has. Who's he conquered for? He's conquered. He's been a servant to his circumcised. And the Gentiles are hearing all these praises, and yet they get to participate in these praises it is. I mean, that's, that just makes it a rather marvelous image that that those who otherwise might have been seen as as the enemies, those who had been conquered, actually receive the victory of the conqueror and are brought into the praises. That the victory that was won was won for them too. I mean, is that so? Am I am I following that image right? Because that's that's kind of what I'm seeing here. Is that those. Christ comes, he conquers as a servant for the circumcised, and he does it not through violence, but through his own death. And, and it would seem, oh, well, he, he won that for them, for his people. And yet those who would be around watching this almost as the conquered actually become a part of that, that victory parade, that praise, that joy, because the victory is for them as well. Yeah, again, the the reversal and the kind of the surprise of Jesus that he's he's not coming to be a warrior is a little bit understandable when you look at the Old Testament I think um it definitely is hidden in type and shadow uh and so I don't know to have a little bit of uh patience and mercy on on the Old Testament and the Jewish people at the time of Christ for their surprise the disciples as well but um I think Jesus' parable about the strong man and the stronger man illustrates it quite well, that mm. that Jesus comes and despoils uh, his people from the devil's clutches. Uh, that, of course, applies to Jews as well as to Gentiles. Uh, but but to be the spoils or to be the the tribute marching behind him in the train, that's that's not usually a positive image. You don't want to. You're the slave then, right? Uh, you you don't really want to be taken as as a prize. Um, in a war in the ancient world. But but this is what is so amazing about Christ. He, those he takes as a prize, he, he despoils from the devil. Mm. And those he takes as a prize, he he takes as his own bride, right? The church. Mm. Uh, we're, we're not uh, to be abused or, or to be subjected under him. But, but he despoils us in order to save and to rescue us and to make us citizens of his kingdom, uh, those under his care and protection. Um, he's done it all for our good. And, and in so many ways, you know, Christ is, is, Christ is the one who goes out and doesn't send other men to their deaths in his war. He himself goes and dies. Uh, mm. We could stay forever on this, on this image of, mm. of what it really finally means to be King Messiah. But um, this image that, that, that so much of the Old Testament, you know, that, that at first glance, 
and maybe in there it's kind of immediate context seems to be couched in war language in conquering where where the gentiles are to be destroyed right uh in the end actually through jesus and through the descendant of david are going to be about about him conquering and incorporating them into his citizenship and that far greater than the persians or anyone else who tried this as their foreign policy jesus really is going to incorporate all of these people not as subjects but as citizens in his kingdom so in these old testament quotations you said that that paul's going to bring together a bunch of key characters from the old testament and the first one he brings is king david the first quotation that we have in verse nine comes from two places, same, same thing going on. Psalm 18 and second Samuel 22. This is a quotation of King David. Give us some context. What's, where's this quotation coming from and what's Paul doing with it here? Sure. In second Samuel, I think there's always a good public service announcement to recognize that first, second Samuel, first, second Kings, first, second Chronicles to a certain degree are all describing the same events. They overlap. Uh, Chronicles and Kings are Northern Southern Kingdom, right? Uh, so, so as you're reading these books, if you hear things repeated, realize they didn't happen twice. It's describing it from two different directions. And then first, second Samuel kind of overlaps both of those as well. Um, in addition to that, now we have to add the Psalms as another overlapping Bible book, because Psalm 18, at least, is quoted directly here in Second Samuel chapter 22. So that's what we're looking at is essentially Psalm 18. Uh, but it has this heading in Second Samuel that the, David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, if you look at the chapters preceding, you see Saul isn't really mentioned. He's, uh, we're not talking about him anymore. Uh, so this is kind of a capstone psalm for David. Uh, that that encompasses all of his victories and, and all of his deliverances from the Lord. And it starts off with, I think, a very familiar phrase to all of us. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, my shield, my horn. Listen to him just piling up all the ways that the Lord is is the strong one who who doesn't crush or, or destroy David, but but saves him, right? And, and then we come to uh, the passage that uh, we're referencing which is uh, verse 50, or in Psalm 18, it's verse 49. And it says this, For I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. This is right at the end of the psalm. So turns out, uh, turns out that the, the Gentiles are still present, right? Now, if you were reading the immediate context of David, it might seem most obvious that he's been, you know, in and out of being captured. Uh, he, he's been in uh, the Gentile territories uh, doing battle. So maybe that's what it means, right? Uh, but Paul opens this up with his apostolic insight and shows, no, David didn't mention the Gentiles uh, just uh, by chance, but it was to show that they too would be brought into this. Hmm. Particularly, you know, King David, as you said, that that Psalm comes at the toward the end of King David's reign. It mentions King Saul, although, like she said, it seems to be more of a summary. And you think about King David and his his reign as king. The the enemy that typically comes to my mind when I think of King David is the the Philistine the army, Goliath, of course, at the very beginning. That's before he's king. But that the Philistines really are that that counter. The, the primary foil to David and, and his reign, it seems, throughout that, that narrative. And yet to think of King David winning these victories over them for the purpose of proclaiming the name of the Lord to those very people that, that, are, that are the Lord's enemies, and yet he desires salvation for them. And so David is going to praise the Lord's name even among them in these victories that, that have been given to him. Again, it's just a very astounding thing. Uh, what what about and so I'm thinking you know oh no I, I lost it I should have stayed there Psalm 18 uh, so I was reading around it verse 49 is the the in Psalm 18 that's quoted but right before that you know David writes 
the Lord lives, this is verse 46 of Psalm 18, the Lord lives, blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. And then you get the verse that, that Paul quotes, again, with, with apostolic um, uh, insight, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit. I think, you know, I don't know that I would have used that verse to make the Paul the point that Paul's making, Although when I read it, it's like, oh yeah, that, that's right. But the the surrounding context, imagine, this is what I'm trying to do here, Pastor Denzer. Tell me, tell me what you think. Imagine these words not just as David's words, but as Christ's own words, as as Christ being son of David and yet also David's Lord, that that he sings these words and he sings them for our sake. I, to me, that, that really even broadens what Paul's doing with this verse. If we put these words, not just in the mouth of David, but finally in the, the mouth of David's son, David's Lord, Jesus. Absolutely. Well, and in verse 50, I mean, the last verse of the psalm, uh, Christ gets a mention by name, right? Uh, he shows mercy to his anointed. And if we were reading in a better language like Greek or Latin, I suppose we'd see it jump off the page, right? Christ would be the word right there. Uh, anytime we see uh, anointed, we, but we also have another one. We have seed, you know, which leads into our next, uh, I, mean, I mean, that whenever we see David and his offspring, his seed, mm. his descendants, uh, the seed is probably the best one. Cause that brings us back to Paul talking about, right. Um, uh, not to seeds, but to his seed, mm. uh, to the, to the descendant of David, of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob, that is Christ, the one uh, who fulfilled those promises to the patriarchs. There's one other kind of geographical type going on here too. And that's just all the sea peoples, the, the Philistines, you know, fast forward uh, a couple thousand or a thousand years and, uh, and who lives there or, or what territory is that? It's Galilee of the Gentiles. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the, so and there's great significance in the fact that Jesus is walking around, not just anywhere in earth, not just in Jerusalem, where you might expect him, but he's wandering in Galilee of the Gentiles. He's from, you know, he's doing his ministry there. Um, uh, this is foretold as well by the Old Testament, although Paul doesn't bring it up here. Right, right. Yeah, uh, Isaiah chapter nine. Now, Paul will bring up Isaiah chapter eleven. Before we before we leave Psalm, this quotation from Psalm eighteen, just real briefly, there's one one more thing that I think we ought to point out, where where it's translated. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. The word that's translated as praise there is a word that can also mean to to confess. And I, I hesitate to read Greek on, on the air too much. I do it occasionally, and Andy Bates makes fun of me. But, but <laughs> the, the word is, in, in Greek is, is ex omologesomai, which, which means to, to confess, to say the same thing out of your mouth. So what's the relationship, Pastor Denzer, between confessing, and, and here not confessing of sins, but, but speaking what God has said, what's the relationship between confessing and praising? Sure, it's dangerous to ask the director of worship that question, but uh, it is actually surprising <laughs> to hunt through the Psalms and to find out how often that is the word that we simply translate as praise, at least, and it's easy to see in the Greek. Um, uh, again, of course, the Psalms were written in Hebrew originally, but you're right, this confession word is perfect for trying to capture what uh, halal, what, what hallelujah means uh, in Hebrew and what it means in the whole of scripture for praising God. It doesn't just mean kind of sucking on his thumb and saying he's really awesome. Uh, and sometimes, you know, there are passages where we, we just want to translate, you know, I, we're, we're Greek, more Greek than we are Hebrew. And we don't like to go on and on about, okay, he's my rock. He's my fortress. I get it. He's kind of a big deal. He's awesome. Right powerful something uh he's awesome but the hebrew way of of repeating of emphasizing you know is to say more is to cause you to think about all these different things and, and put some invest some imagination in them as well and and to see how he's done this and in what ways he's done this and there's always allusions in the psalms to the to the great events that every Jew would remember, right? We're always the Red Sea is not very far behind you when you're reading David's Psalms, uh, for good reason, and that's what this ex homologeo, this confessing, professing, praising word, really is to mean. It, we praise God when we tell the great things that He has done, 
and you see this so well in our hymns as well. Uh, if Lutheran hymns are criticized for anything, it's probably that they're a little long. Okay, sometimes I, I'm with you. But it's if they're long, the reason we have to sing all the stanzas, I'm sorry, is it tells a story, right? It, it declares the whole thing. Uh, Dear Christians, one and all rejoice by, by, by Luther is not even addressed to God, right? It's addressed to our fellow Christians, which at first we think, well, that's not a praise song at all. That That doesn't it doesn't even talk to God. False. It's doing exactly what the Psalms are doing. It's confessing Jesus Christ and what he's done. Proclaim the wonders God has done by his right arm, the victory he won. Uh, this is the way of praising God is by telling the great works that he's done. And and now, you know, the Red Sea may not be too far behind us now uh, if we're supposed to take all of the scriptures as uh, written for our comfort and instruction. But But the chief... Uh, work of God. Chiefly are we bound to praise him for his glorious death and his resurrection for our salvation. Mm-hmm. Well said, well said. You, you did a nice job of not not continuing on that for the rest of the program. So, Thank Pastor you. <laughs> well said, though. Well said. Pastor Dittler, let's keep let's keep trucking through these Old Testament quotes. Verse 10, much shorter quotation, very succinct to the point, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This is being drawn from Deuteronomy 32, it looks like. Yeah, in your if you're reading in the ESV, you're going to have a little trouble because there's a textual variant in in the old Masoretic text. That's uh, actually it's less old as it turns out. Uh, the Hebrew text that we have from kind of the medieval scholars, uh, which still is very strong, and and, uh, and with the advent of the Dead Sea Scrolls, finding those which are from earlier than the Masoretic text, we get to find out really how accurate our medieval manuscripts of the Hebrew Old Testament are, which is which is a good comfort for us. Here's one of the places where they slightly differ. And actually the, the Dead Sea Scroll of Deuteronomy that was found matches with the Greek translation, the Septuagint, uh, that we've already mentioned a couple of times. In not having this phrase, rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods. Actually, that phrase isn't in the Masoretic text, but it has rejoice, O people, right? It has exactly what we have here from St. Paul. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, O nations, right? Uh, So that's the text. And where does this come in Deuteronomy? The end of chapter 32. The end of of a long speech, the last speech, the last sermon, we should say, of Moses before he dies. Just a couple of verses after is when the Lord spake, spoke to Moses and said, go up Mount Nebo. Uh, that's the end of it, right? He sees the land and then the Lord uh, buries him or takes him or however, whatever happens to him, Moses dies on the mountain. Aaron and Joshua take over. Uh, Moses isn't allowed to go in the promised land. But that's the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, If you want to know what it means, second law. If you want to know what it is, it's a series of sermons preached by Moses on the other side of the Jordan River, the place where John the Baptist did his work, by the way, uh, preaching sermons, reiterating everything they've talked about, you know, uh, reiterating all of their failures and the Lord's mercy throughout the 40 years in the wilderness, giving the law of God and the, and the commandments and the, and the ceremonies again to them and telling them to watch for the, uh, the prophet who's going to come to whom they all have to listen. And that's Jesus. That's why everybody in the, in the gospels is asking, are you the prophet, not a prophet, the prophet, the one that Moses mentioned. And right here at the very end of his of his last sermon, right? Rejoice, O nations, with his people. Bow down to him, for he avenges the blood of his children. He seeks vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Again, in, you know, in the context of all this war and, and, and victory for Israel, we have another statement about the Gentiles rejoicing. Uh, but 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 here's the great uh, here's the great amazing thing about the lord's repayment you know in Christ Jesus that he comes actually to pay the ransom himself that that he bears the punishment in our place and that he he gives as it says elsewhere in the old testament a double for all their sins uh, not double punishment double forgiveness mm-hmm. paul's brought king david to the to the table he's brought moses to the table in verse 11 we get a quote from Psalm 117, which always stands out to me to be that, the way I, the reason I remember that because that's the shortest one. It's only you two verses long. Yeah. 
That's right. It's easy to in our in our mem- have we have we memorized this one as the synod yet, Pastor Denzer? No, we should. We should. We should, and then we can tell people that we're memorizing. You've just memorized a whole chapter of the Bible, Psalm one hundred seventeen. So who's who's Paul bringing to the table with Psalm one hundred seventeen? Oh, you caught me! You caught me without my uh, references, so I'm not sure. Do you know by chance? Well, it, I, I've got it open. There's no, there's no superscription there. Okay. So I mean, that's that's kind of maybe I don't know. Is that part of the point? Uh, we don't know. It's a Psalm of David. Um, yeah, who's this shortest Psalm? What's what's Paul doing with it? We tend to default to David, but but even so, it, it does reference other very important phrases. So, oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye people, for his merciful kindness is great toward us. The truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. Um, seeing that other verse that Paul doesn't reference, but is probably in his mind when there's only two of them. The truth of the Lord endures forever. Remember, Christ has become a servant to the circumcised in order to show God's truth. Uh, but the truth is what his merciful kindness toward us. Now, this in the Psalms context, I suppose that's Jews exclusively. But Paul is is showing how all now are under the mercy of Christ Jesus. But again, it starts off not just praise him all God's people, right? Praise him all nations. Um, so, so it's it's wider than just uh, it's wider than just the Jewish nation. And if I'm sure people have talked about this before, but it's always helpful for a reminder. When we see the word nation, it's probably Gentile or heathen. Those are some of the older translations. But we should realize it, it, the word in Greek especially is ethnic, which, which we know that mm-hmm. word, right? And right. ethnic is kind of, a, it's kind of a racy thing to say that because that implies, uh, well, whatever my ethnicity is, that's normal. And ethnic is everything else. It carries that same you know, not very nice connotation, frankly, in the scriptures uh, with the way that that the Jews are talking about there's us and then there's all the other nations, right? Uh, but here the Lord is changing and transforming that uh, t- to be this blessed thing, right? That, yeah, okay, it's it's you and all the others, right? I'm bringing all the others in with you and we're all together into Christ now. Pastor Dinger, we've probably got about five minutes here. So let's take us to Isaiah briefly, but I want to make sure we also leave enough time to, to look at this verse 13, this prayer for the church that Paul has. So what does Paul finally brings Isaiah to the table? Sure. Well, uh, go, uh, remember Advent, and you've heard this passage before, right? The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Uh, this one's probably the clearest for combining both the the militaristic conquered, right? Uh, he's going to come and rule the Gentiles. Okay, so Jesus is going to come and, and wipe out all the nations, right? And make them serve him. But no, it also says in him will the Gentiles hope. Uh, and this is from the passage in Isaiah 11 that begins, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his root shall bear fruit, etc. We know this from Advent and all the Advent hymns as well. Um, so, uh, so note, uh, the Gentiles are not just going to be ruled by the Lord. They're not just going to be crushed mm-hmm. by him. They're going to hope in him. They're actually going to be drawn that, to him. That word hope there at the end of the Isaiah quotation, although not the only thing Paul brings to bear in his prayer there in verse 13, but certainly seems to be the, the driving theme of the way Paul closes this section. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Hope begins that verse. It closes that verse. What is Paul's prayer for the church? So he's just laid out some beautiful scriptures after telling us that the scriptures are written for our instruction and for our comfort, right? That we may have hope. And he's shown how there's hope for the Jews because Christ Jesus has fulfilled his promises, right? And now there is hope and mercy for the Gentiles who were always hoping and, and, and were promised to be you know, included in this praise of the Lord and his victory uh, through all these Old Testament passages. But now this has come to fruition in Christ Jesus. So what about us who are all in Christ? We are his new Israel now. We are beset by all sorts of enemies of our own. Sometimes we we kind of transmute the word Gentile to mean unbeliever, right? Uh, it's, it's not quite a one-to-one, but but it works to, to a certain degree. And what are we to, how are we to respond to this? How are we to survive in this? How are we to um, 
conduct ourselves in this world that rejects Christ Jesus, right? Where our battle lines are no longer Jew and Gentile, uh, but our, our sadness is, you know, we're trying to bring the gospel to all nations, to all peoples, to everyone who does not believe yet. Well, we should take very great comfort in the believing of the Lord's promises, seeing how they've already been fulfilled, and believing and trusting his promises that are yet to be fulfilled, at least in the sense of that we get to see them taking place. I think the chief one for that is the resurrection itself, right? We are waiting for the last day. We are waiting for the Lord to have all the enemies of sin and death and the devil under subjection to him. And we get to see that, right? Well, we're no longer beset by all of these frustrations, including the ones that lie within our own sinful hearts. Uh, so we are to be then filled with hope and find our joy and our peace, not in material things that can be broken or destroyed, right? But in, in the Lord himself and in the hope, the, the, the resurrection, the what we're expecting, uh, which then should give us confidence, which then can lead us to set aside all these things that might divide us and, and rather be united, as Paul's been making his point for a while. And I'm always drawn to the keep way. Going, keep going. Keep going. I'm always drawn to the way that uh, the creed is in Latin. We say it in English, and we say, you know, we look for the resurrection of the dead. Like I don't know, we're looking out or uh, trying to see if it's out the window or something. The word in Latin is expect, expecto. Mm. It means to look. But but I think it's a very helpful thing to say. What is the nature of our looking or our hoping? It's not a wishing. It's not a, a hope against hope but it's an expectation. It's, it's got a confidence to it. It's not a uncertain thing. We're, we know it's going to come and happen. We believe the Lord's promises. Uh, the only question is when, right? So we are expectantly, uh, delightfully, joyfully, and, and eagerly, anxiously awaiting this. And that is then to fill with us with joy and peace in trusting the Lord's promises now and trusting and hoping uh, looking with hope uh, for their fulfillment the last day. Mm. Faith, Hebrews 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is not a, a, a wish, uh, and we're not sure, but it is something that we know will happen because we have God's sure and certain promise. Pastor Sean Denzer is the Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, also the Chaplain for the International Center, helping us this morning with Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13. Pastor Denzer, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. Just as Christ has welcomed us, so we welcome each other, Jew and Gentile together, both under the mercy of Christ. It is what he has done for us that has brought us into the church. He has been our servant. He has won the victory for us, not through military power, but through his own sacrificial death on the cross, and through his resurrection on the third day. This is his victory, and, and then he brings us into this victory to share in that victory and to praise his name together as we confess to the world what he has done, the wonders that he has done for us in that chief act, his death and his resurrection, and that fills us with hope, a confident expectation that on the last day he will return and take us forever to live with him. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.